0: Hello, and welcome to the History of China. Episode 2, Five Emperors, Twelve Islands. Last time, we ended with the reign and eventual passing of the final mythical sovereign, the Yellow Emperor Huangdi, In 2598 BCE. Today, we'll explore the second stage of China's prehistoric origin story as it begins to traverse the chasm between mythology and what we consider to be historic fact the period of the Five Emperors. I mentioned at the conclusion of last week's episode that while we call them the Five Emperors, there remains disagreement over who actually counts as one of the five. As such, we have six main contenders, five of whom are actually interesting, and five of whom are most frequently cited as being in the clique. Out of a sense of fairness, then, I'll be going ahead and going over all six. We start, then, with the emperor, Xiao Hao, and he's kind of our odd man out in this story as only a minority of sources, albeit a sizable minority, includes him as one of the five emperors. We'll discuss more on the why of this in a bit. In the traditional Oro mythos, Shao Hao was born of the union of a weaver goddess and the planet Venus as they floated along the Milky Way. The name Shao Hao, when translated, is somewhat paradoxical. Shao means small or lesser, while the character Hao means a clear summer sky. So, in effect, we get something along the lines of summer sky, the lesser. Relatively soon after descending to Earth, he established a great kingdom to the east of the Hua Empire. It was a kingdom of birds. And no, I'm not using that as some kind of translation like the bird people or people of the bird. I mean literal birds. His Lord Chancellor was a phoenix his minister of education, a hawk, and his minister of education, of all things, a pigeon. Yes, a pigeon. But upon the death of the august yellow emperor, he left his bird kingdom to his son and assumed the western throne. Now, assuming you're with me in saying this particular tale is... wait for it... for the birds... please, hold the tomatoes... let's then take a look at the at least somewhat more accurate-ish tale of Xiao Hao. Rather than being the product of some cosmic one-night stand, we're fairly sure that Xiao Hao was the eldest son of the Yellow Emperor, and was born with the name Xuan Xiao. If you find yourself shaking your head at all this name and title swapping, first, you're not alone, and B, hold on to your hats. This is going to continue all the way up through 1945. So I'll be doing my best to mention birth names and then just sort of ignore them in favor of either dynastic names or chosen names where appropriate. Xiaohao became emperor in, according to our timeline, 2597 BCE upon the death of his father, Huang Di. Over the course of his reign, he would expand relations with and eventually politically incorporate the territory to the south of the main Hua Xia Empire, belonging to a people called the Lolo, or the Yi. Though they recognized the dominance of Emperor Xiao Hao, they remained a largely culturally autonomous people thereafter, having never submitted to full integration with the burgeoning Hua Xia Collective. In fact, even today, the Yi people are recognized as a minority people in China. They remain primarily herders, farmers, and nomadic hunters in the difficult, mountainous regions of southern China, including Sichuan, Yunnan, Guizhou, and Guangxi provinces, as well as northern Vietnam and Thailand. Their estimated modern ethnic population is somewhere around 7.8 million worldwide. Hao's rule was largely peaceful and uneventful. And while that's good for him, it's kind of sparse for us. His son, named Ji, proved himself dishonorable and unfit to rule, and so Xiaohao sought out a more suitable candidate to succeed him. We'll come to see that this will be one of the defining aspects of the Five Emperors' Period, and one of the main reasons it's not remembered as a dynasty as such. Unlike the dynastic successions that will follow, the Five Emperors' Period is marked by a distinct lack of primogeniture succession, or even direct father-to-son succession at all. Though all of our six rulers today are the blood of Huangdi, only one is going to end up being the son of the previous emperor, and him, not even the son that had been selected to rule. So, while we'll later be discussing the emperors and kings of China in terms of successive lines, right now it's more of an erratic zigzag. These guys were more concerned with gasp, the man selected to rule actually being fit to do so, rather than bloodlines and birthright. And this is a state of affairs that would not be repeated in the Middle Kingdom for about 4,500 years and would only occur sporadically worldwide for another 4,300. And some wonder why we call them sage kings. Shaohao ruled over his expanded empire for 84 years, as mentioned, he denied his son the throne, and instead selected his half-brother's son Zhuan Shu to succeed him. He died in 2514 BCE. There is, however, another vein of historical thought of interest to us, specifically in the Shiji, Ji, which asserts that Xiao Hao never, in fact, ruled. Instead, there was a period of extended interregnum between the death of the Yellow Emperor and the eventual election, yes, election, of Zhuanshu to the imperial throne, despite this seeming schism in the quasi-historical record, fortunately, we can all reconcile with the universally recognized successor, or not, to Shao Hao. Zhuanshu was the Yellow Emperor's grandson, the progeny of one of his younger sons, Chang Yi. Though we'll call him Shu for the remainder of his time on stage, that is his regal name he was born as gao yang though there remains the theory that he was elected after a period of interregnum most sources indicate that he was raised by his uncle shao hao to be his assistant at the age of 10 thus learning the intricacies of the court system and what it took to govern gao yang would become the heir and eventual successor to the throne 10 years later when his uncle died in 2514 bce emperor Zhuangshu's reign like his predecessors, was largely free of strife. Having been an adept student of astronomy his whole life, in the 13th year of his reign, he reformed the calendar based on detailed observations of the celestial bodies. In addition, he initiated a series of religious reforms aimed at discouraging the still-prevalent local shamanism in favor of a more general and thus state-controllable worship. He also forbade the marriage of close kin, a relief to eventual geneticists, and no doubt causing great consternation among the ancient Chinese equivalents of the Hatfields and McCoys. Over the course of his rule, he had two sons who are named in the records, Gun and Chongchan. Shu is recorded as having derided at least one of these sons as a dullard. Both were ultimately denied title and position, living out their lives in obscurity. Curiously, Zhuanzhu is reported by some sources at having had as many as eight additional sons, though none named, who did remain in his good graces, and would ultimately serve in later imperial courts. Why none of these sons were deemed even remotely capable of rule is anyone's guess. After a rule of 78 years, Zhuanzhu died having appointed a man named Ku as his heir. Ku was the grandson of the Yellow Emperor and cousin to Zhuang Shu. In fact, he was the son of Ji, the unworthy son of Xiao Hao. Ku is one of the easier emperors we're going to deal with name-wise. He was born simply as Ku, and his Chinese regal name is Ku Di, which translates directly as Emperor Ku. See? Easy peasy. Though he assumed the title of emperor, it remains unclear which territories he actually held. Indeed, upon the death of Zhuan Shu, there are reports of a rebellion flaring up. The leader of this rebellion was a descendant of the old deposed Flame Emperor, named Shu Chu, whose aim was usurping the throne from the heir apparent, Ku. This ember of rebellion, however, was swiftly stamped out by Ku's army, who then wasted no time formally ascending to the throne. Emperor Ku, it should be noted, had an interesting travel arrangement which varied by the season. During the springs and summers, he opted to travel rather conventionally, by horseback. But through the fall and winter months, he really brought on the flair by traveling on dragonback. Perhaps it had to do with essential heating, though I personally can't imagine why, having a dragon ready to go in the stables, anyone would ever opt for horseback again. It's like choosing a bicycle when you've got a jetpack. Though Ku had proved his battle bona fides in putting down the would-be usurper's rebellion, he proved himself much more a lover of the arts than of war. More than anything, he's remembered as an avid composer of songs and inventor of musical instruments, including drums, bells, chimes, pipes, ocarinas, and flutes. Now, I say he is remembered for inventing these instruments, but in fact the sum total of his contribution was ordering a subordinate to invent them. In classic managerial fashion, someone else does all the work, and the king takes all the credit. Ku would take four wives over the course of his reign. And by this, I don't mean he pulled a Henry VIII and went through them one after the other. Oh, no. I mean he amassed a bit of a harem, something that will be quite common for emperors of China. Once again, it's good to be king. Each of these four wives, in turn, would produce a son. This gaggle of four squalling half-brothers were named oldest to youngest, Ji, Xie, Yao, and Zhi. Once each of his four sons were born, Ku found he needed to resolve a bit of a quandary. Which of his sons ought to inherit the empire? Now, this process will in time be streamlined with the later adoption of agnatic primogeniture, a.k.a. The firstborn son wins rule. But for now, it was still a rather open question. To resolve this potential dilemma, then, he consulted an oracle and asked which of his sons would rule his empire after him. And in typical soothsayer nebulousness, the oracle opaquely stated that they all would. Like the daily newspaper horoscope, if you read these kind of predictions the right way, it's always vague enough to end up being kind of true the two eldest sons zhi and yao will deal with more in a minute because they're going to become emperors in their own rights right after we're done with ku all right so far so good oracle but the two younger brothers would never have the chance to rule and so it seems like we would give the oracle a fifty percent f-thanks minus. for trying however the story is such that the third son of xie would ultimately be known as the pre-dynastic founder of the Shang dynasty that will rule from 1600 to 1046 BCE, and is the first dynasty that is considered more fact than fiction. The youngest brother, Ji, which, since it's so close to Thanksgiving, I'll add sounds exactly like the Chinese word for Turkey, would also be remembered as a dynastic founder, specifically of the Zhou dynasty that would take power after the Shang's fall and rule from 1045 to 256 BCE. You may recall I mentioned last week that it will be the Zhou dynasty in power when the city of Rome is founded half a world away. Not that either civilization knows about the other whatsoever. Having rightly deemed the oracles cryptic advice to be pretty much useless. Oh, they'll all rule? Yeah, that helps me narrow down the choice. Thanks for nothing. Emperor Ku decided to snub his eldest son, Ju, and named his little brother Yao to be the successor. Now, if you're thinking that just might come back to haunt everyone, well, gold star to you. And Ju certainly was given the time to nurse the grudge he clearly had, because Ku would rule for another two decades, taking Yao under his wing and showing him the ropes of governance before dying in 2366 BCE after a 70-year reign. So now we have Yao, having dutifully paid respects to his dear departed father, and waiting out the customary mourning period before assuming leadership over his people. But what's this? Why, it's elder brother Ju, who's going to receive his proper due, damn it! And with dear old dad now out of the way, no silly little designated heir clause is going to stand in his way. Before Yao could react or move to oppose his brazen maneuver, Zhe had seized power and declared himself Emperor Zhe, thank you very much. And rather than raise much of a fuss, the Sha Empire pretty much just shrugged its collective shoulders and said, All right, yeah, that works too, I guess. Yao, it would seem, was simply out of luck. Unfortunately for Zhe, seizing the throne appears to be just about the last good or even notable decision he would make. In spite of the fact that he's routinely listed as one of the five emperors of this period, there is very little written about his reign. This is most likely because, as we'll soon see, his reign is rather brief. A mere nine years, in fact. And while that puts him in power for longer than every U.S. president other than FDR, a nine-year stint sandwiched between the reigns of seven decades and a century, respectively, hardly registers as a blip five thousand years later. It was during this time, it's worth noting, that the Hua Sha people, perhaps through their southern Yi allies, became aware of and would subsequently encounter a people calling themselves the Van Lang tribe, who we know today as the Vietnamese. The specific circumstances of Ji's downfall are unclear. Some say that Yao was able to mount a successful coup and depose his elder brother. others report that Zhu was stricken with an illness and died, thus paving the way for Yao's ascension. Regardless, in 2356 BCE, through either happenstance or coup d'etat, Ku's second son was finally able to put to use all that emperor training he'd received from his father. Yao was just 20 when he took up the mantle of rule, but he proved himself more than equal to the job he would be extolled for millennia as being morally perfect and a sage-king among sage-kings. It is the rule of Emperor Yao, in fact, that would most often be used as a model for the reigns of future dynasties. Before we delve into the meat of Yao's rule, I'd like to take a moment and assess where we are on the scale of fairy tale to historical fact. As we've progressed forward from the sovereigns, our dial of historicity has begun moving away from the red line, pants on fire, fairy tale end of the scale. Now, five hundred years into our story, we've come to a point where the consensus is that, at the very least, these next few guys actually physically existed in some form. You take what you can get. Our current emperor Yao, his successor Shun, and Shun's successor Yu are often regarded as possibly being the chieftains of the allied tribes of this region. It would collectively move their coalition into a state of real unification under a hierarchical government, all on its way to the feudal imperial system that it will ultimately coalesce into. Yao is said to have invented the game Go, known in Chinese as Wei Qi. If you haven't heard of Go, that's understandable but unfortunate because it's quite a fun game. Wildly popular throughout Asia and also fairly popular in the West. Go is a board game for two players using two sets of tiles, one white and one black. Players take turns placing a tile on the intersection of the game's board grid with the objective of encircling their opponent's pieces. At the end of the game, the player who controls the most area of the board via encirclement wins. You can find free Flash versions through Google, and I really suggest you give it a try as it's very easy to pick up but involves a deceptively deep amount of strategy. Yao invented this game in a high-minded but ultimately futile attempt to change the nature of his eldest son, Dan Zhu. Dan Zhu was reportedly a vain, vicious playboy, with few, if any, redeeming attributes. His misdeeds and lack of virtue were so widely known that ultimately his father would be forced to banish the prince and disinherit him from the throne. He also had two daughters, E Huang and Yu Ying, who will become important in a little bit. But now begins a catastrophe, one so great that it will span the reigns of three emperors, an event known as Da Shui or the Great Flood, no relation to the Great Flood of Noah. Due to shallow riverbeds, outlets choked with debris, and large marshy areas prone to flooding anyway, the waters of the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers began to unpredictably flood with devastating effect. From the Book of History, Emperor Yao is quoted as having said, Like the endless boiling water, the flood is pouring forth destruction. Boundless and overwhelming, it overtops hills and mountains. Rising and ever rising, it threatens the very heavens. How the people must be groaning and suffering. The waters would rise so high that according to the story, the whole of the Yangtze and Yellow River Valleys, which is to say, pretty much the entire kingdom, was turned into a shallow sea for periods of the year, every year, with only the peaks of the tallest regions remaining safe from the effects. Obviously, something had to be done to stem the damage and prevent the entire land from being destroyed. Yao consulted with his four chief advisers, known as the Four Mountains, and they recommended appointing someone in charge of dealing with this problem. Though initially reluctant at the candidate they suggested, Yao ultimately deferred to the Four Mountains and named his distant cousin, Prince Gun of Chong, as the man responsible to control the floodwaters. Prince Gun, for his part, concocted a novel solution, earthen dikes. But not just any old earth would do. After all, previous attempts to dam the waters had just resulted in them being overtopped as the water continued to rise. Instead, Gun decided to steal a magical substance from heaven known as Shirang or growing earth. This growing earth could multiply on itself manifold, thus growing the dam itself as the waters continued to rise. This, seeming like a fantastic idea, was put into action immediately, and at first it worked well. But after a time, it became clear that, A, dams were only a stopgap measure that was doing nothing to stop the underlying problem, and B, earthen dams, even ones using magical earth, are not foolproof against raging torrents of floodwaters coming in year after year after year. It wasn't all that long before the dam started springing leaks or even collapsing, which resulted in yet more devastation and social unrest. Emperor Yao, now an old and increasingly weak man, took the dam's failure as a sign from heaven that he should bow out. At first, he attempted to abdicate to his advisors the Four Mountains, but each refused him in turn. Once again, however, they had a recommendation for the Emperor, nominating yet another of his distant relatives to the job, a man who until this point had been living in a relative obscurity, Prince Shun. By this point, though, Yao was rather wary of the mountain's recommendations. After all, just look at how that Gun guy's plan was working out. So he resolved to test drive Shun before committing to anything. To begin with, he installed Gun as the governor of a small prefecture. And married his two daughters, uh, Huang and Yu Ying, to him, like their decadent brother, the two sisters had grown accustomed to a life of extravagant luxuriousness. but their husband, Prince Shun, convinced them to live as he did, simply and willing to work alongside their people. The startling turnaround of his two seemingly intransigent daughters, combined with his able administration of his prefecture, no doubt impressed Yao greatly. Though the test was not yet complete, Shun was clearly marked for a meteoric rise. He was appointed successively to the Minister of Instruction, General Regulator, which is roughly analogous to a Prime Minister, and finally Chief of the Four Mountains over the course of only three years. In each position, he set about putting the Department's affairs in orders with speed and efficiency. Finally convinced of the young prince's worth, Yao offered Shun the chance to rule alongside him as co-emperor. After all these tests and passing with such flying colors, Emperor Yao must have been surprised indeed when Shun turned down his offer. At first glance, it's hard for one to understand why anyone would turn down the offer of co-emperorship and eventual single emperor of Hua Xia. But then again, remember the circumstances. Yao was offering responsibility and governance over not some idyllic land, but a veritable disaster area with things going further south yearly. Not exactly what one would want offered. To his credit, Shun didn't scoff at the prospect, but merely insisted that there must be someone more qualified and virtuous to head the empire. We can only imagine that Yao must have only glumly shook his head and Shen realized that the only other real option was the emperor's son, Dan Zhu, licentious, petty, cruel, and thoroughly unfit for command of anything larger than a tankard of ale. Unwilling to subject the empire to that particular fate, Shun finally assented and took up co-command. It was in 2275 that Shun assumed the title of co-emperor alongside the now more than 90-year-old Yao. The subsequent three years of co-rulership were marked by Yao ceding more and more of his authority to the incoming leader before retiring altogether. Yao would enjoy a 28-year retirement before finally passing at age 119. Though he had initially declined the heavy burden of rule, now that Shun had risen to the challenge, he endeavored to mold his kingdoms to his image. First and foremost, he sought to deal with those who had long sucked at the former emperor's teat while driving the land into further suffering and ruin. At the top of this list was our old friend, Prince Gun of Chong. You'll remember him as the guy whose whole claim to fame was building magical earthen dikes to stem the, as yet still, ongoing floods. But in the face of unmistakable and total failure, Gun had not only remained the commander of flood control, but had doubled down his already discredited plan. To throw out a phrase that still haunts the American ear, Gunn had opted to stay the course. But it was even worse than it might have seemed to be. You see, not only would these earthen dams leak and crumble, and not only had Gunn been so consumed by his dam construction idea that he had forgotten his actual charge had been to stem the flooding itself, not just control the effects, but his failure had now reached a critical threshold, a kind of failure-event horizon. For four years, since their weaknesses had been made apparent, Gunn's dams had continued to grow up and up and up as the floodwaters continued unabated. Up and up until they were quite simply unable to go up any further, and they collapsed in on themselves virtually all at once, unleashing a cataclysmic torrent on the countryside. This devastation was only compounded by Gun's other fatal misstep. He had made the grievous error of calling into question the new emperor's legitimacy. After all, though a prince, Shun was of relatively modest birth. Heck, even Gun himself was of nobler descent. But with the stability of his empire, not only physical, but also moral and legal in the balance shun felt he had no choice an example would have to be made of this lippy failure gun the emperor arrested gun and locked him away in a prison on feather mountain gun would end up dying in that prison though whether by execution or honorable suicide is unclear by this point for much of a given year the hua empire looked less like the farmable river valley it had been founded as and more like a series of islands adrift in a shallow sea. Realizing this unique impediment to traditional means of rule and communication, Shun opted for a new strategy to better manage his territory, bureaucracy. He divided his empire into 12 Zhou, variously called provinces or prefectures, each of which would be directly administered from the highest point in that area. It is notable that even in modern Chinese script, the character for prefecture, Zhou, is virtually identical in form to the word for large island or continent, also called Zhou. Resolving once again to get to the root of this perennial disaster, Emperor Shun made the interesting decision to appoint Prince Gun's own son, Yu, to the task his father had so abjectly failed. Talk about pressure. Hey, we imprisoned and executed your dad because he didn't solve this problem We'd like you to do better, you know, or else. You, however, would not make the same mistakes as his dear departed father. Rather than merely controlling the symptoms through dikes, you opted to attack the root of the flooding itself. In his own words, I opened the passages for the streams throughout the nine provinces and conducted them to the seas. I deepened the channels and conducted them to the streams. Having studied the waterways intently, you focused on implementing and expanding drainage systems, dredging the river bottoms, draining marshlands that would greatly impede water flow, and constructing massive irrigation channels into the newly created farmable areas. How was such a monumental task accomplished? Why, earth-boring yellow dragons and massive black mud-hauling tortoises, of course. Or, if you want the rather less awesome version through years and years of back-breaking labor by contingents of peasant slaves. Potato, potato. You, having done nothing less than save the entire kingdom, was hailed a hero and declared great Yu, master of the waters, having accomplished what had seemed to be an impossible task, one that had raged on for more than twenty years and flummoxed even the best and brightest of the land. Emperor Shun declared you his heir. It must be noted that, once again, the emperor had found his own son to be a complete disappointment, unworthy of the throne. His kingdom, once again peaceful and productive, Emperor Shun, would reign for a period of 50 years until 2195 BCE, when, having taken suddenly ill while traveling, he perished. And so we come at last to the end of the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors Mythos, and to the very edge of our first true Chinese dynasty the Xia. Next time, we'll begin our analysis of the 4th century period of Xia control over the Yellow River Valley, beginning with the rule of Yu the great. Thank you for listening.